The French Revolution, A History, by Thomas Carlyle, Volume 1. Book 4, States General. Chapter 1, The Notables Again. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Book 4, Chapter 1, The Notables Again. The universal prayer, therefore, is to be fulfilled. Always in days of national perplexity, when wrong abounded and help was not, this remedy of states-general was called for. By a Malesherbes, nay, by a Fenelon, even parliaments calling for it were escorted with blessings. And now, behold, it is vouchsafed us. States-general shall verily be. To say, let states-general be, was easy. To say in what manner they shall be is not so easy. Since the year of 1614, there have no states-general met in France. All trace of them has vanished from the living habits of men. Their structure, powers, methods of procedure, which were never in any measure fixed, have now become wholly a vague possibility. Clay, which the potter may shape, this way or that, say rather the twenty-five millions of potters, for so many have now more or less a vote in it. How to shape the states general? There is a problem. Each body corporate, each privileged, each organised class has secret hopes of its own in that matter, and also secret misgivings of its own. For, behold, this monstrous twenty-five million class, hitherto the dumb sheep which these others had to agree about the manner of shearing, is now also arising with hopes. It has ceased, or is ceasing, to be dumb. It speaks through pamphlets, or at least brays and growls behind them, in unison, increasingly wonderfully their volume of sound. As for the Parliament of Paris, it has at once declared for the old form of 1614, which form had this advantage, that the tiers estate, third estate, or commons, figured there as a show mainly whereas the noblesse and clergy had but to avoid quarrel between themselves and decide unobstructed what they thought best. Such was the clearly declared opinion of the Paris Parliament. But being met by a storm of mere hooting and howling from other men, such opinion was blown straightway to the winds, and the popularity of the Parliament along with it, never to return. The Parliament's part, we said above, was as good as played. Concerning which, however, there is this further to be noted, the proximity of dates. It was on the 22nd of September that the Parliament returned from vacation or exile in its estates to be reinstalled amid boundless jubilee from all Paris. Precisely next day it was that this same Parliament came to its clearly declared opinion and then, on the morrow after that, you behold it covered with outrages, its outer court one vast sibilation, and the glory departed from it for evermore. A popularity of twenty-four hours was in those times no uncommon allowance. On the other hand, how superfluous was that invitation of Lomenes, the invitation to thinkers, Thinkers and unthinkers, by the million, are spontaneously at their post, doing what is in them. Clubs, labour, society, publicole, Breton club, enraged club, club des enragés. Likewise, dinner parties in the Palais Royal, 
your Mirabeau's Talleyrand dining there in company with Chamfort, Morellet, with Dupont and hot parliamenteers, not without object, for a certain Neckerian lions provider whom one could name assembles them there, or even their own private determination to have dinner does it. And then, as to pamphlets, in figurative language, it is a sheer snowing of pamphlets like to snow up the government thoroughfares. Now is the time for friends of freedom, sane and even insane. Count, or self-styled Count d'Intrigue, the young Laguedosian gentleman, with perhaps Chamfort the cynic to help him, rises into furor, almost pithic, highest where many are high. Foolish young Languedocian gentleman, who himself so soon, emigrating among the foremost, must fly indignant over the marches with the contrast social in his pocket towards outer darkness, thankless intriguing, ignis fatuous hoverings, and death by the stiletto. Abbe Sier has left Chartres Cathedral and canonry and bookshelves there, has let his tonsure grow and come to Paris with a secular head of the most irrefragible sort to ask three questions and answer them. What is the third estate? All. What has it hitherto been in our form of government? Nothing. What does it want? To become something. Dorleon, for to be sure he, on his way to chaos, is in the thick of this, promulgates his deliberations, fathered by him, written by Laclos of the Liaison Dangereuse, the result of which comes out simply, the third estate is the nation. On the other hand, Monseigneur d'Artois, with other princes of the blood, publishes in solemn memorial to the king that if such things be listened to, privilege, nobility, monarchy, church, state and strongbox are in danger. In danger, truly. And yet, if you do not listen, are they out of danger? It is the voice of all France, this sound that rises. Immeasurable, manifold, as the sound of outbreaking waters. Wise were he who knew what to do in it, if not to fly to the mountains and hide himself. How an ideal, all-seeing Versailles government, sitting there on such principles, in such an environment, would have determined to demean itself at this new juncture, may even yet be a question. Such a government would have felt too well that its long task was now drawing to a close that, under the guise of these states-general, at length inevitable, a new, omnipotent unknown of democracy was coming into being, in presence of which no Versailles government either could or should, except in a provisory character, continue extant. To an act which provisory character, so unspeakably important, might its whole faculties but have sufficed, and so a peaceable, gradual, well-conducted abdication and domine dimittas have been the issue. This for our ideal, all-seeing Versailles government. But for the actual, irrational Versailles government, alas, that is a government existing there only for its own behoof, without right except possession, and now also without might. It foresees nothing sees nothing, has not so much as a purpose, but has only purposes, and the instinct whereby all that exists will struggle to keep existing. Wholly a vortex in which vain counsels, hallucinations, falsehoods, intrigues, and imbecilities whirl like withered rubbish in the meeting of winds. 
The oi de boeuf has its irrational hopes, if also its fears. Since hitherto all states-general have done as good as nothing, why should these do more? The commons, indeed, look dangerous, but on the whole is not revolt, unknown now for five generations, an impossibility? The three estates can, by management, be set against each other. The third will, as heretofore, join with the king, will, out of mere spite and self-interest, be eager to tax and vex the other two. The other two are thus delivered, bound into our hands, that we may fleece them likewise. Whereupon, money being got, and the three estates all in quarrel, dismiss them, and let the future go on as it can. As good Archbishop Romany was wont to say, there are so many accidents, and it needs but one to save us. How many to destroy us? Poor Necker, in the midst of such an anarchy, does what is possible for him. He looks into it with obstinately hopeful face, lords the known rectitude of the kingly mind, listens indulgent-like to the known perverseness of the queenly and courtly, emits, if any proclamation or regulation, one favouring the tiers etat, but settles nothing, hovering afar off rather, and advising all things to settle themselves. The grand questions for the present have got reduced to two, the double representation and the vote by head. Shall the commons have a double representation, that is to say, have as many members as the noblesse and clergy united? Shall the states-general, when once assembled, vote and deliberate in one body, or in three separate bodies, vote by head, or vote by class, ordre, as they call it? These are the moot points, now filling all France with jargon, logic, and eleutheromania. To terminate which Necker bethinks him, might not a second convocation of the notables be fittest? Such second convocation is resolved on. On the 6th of November of this year, 1788, these notables accordingly have reassembled after an interval of some 18 months. They are Cologne's old notables, the same hundred and forty-four, to show one's impartiality, likewise to save time. They sit there once again in their seven bureaus in the hard winter weather. It is the hardest winter since 1709, thermometer below zero of Fahrenheit, Seine River, frozen over. Cold, scarcity, and eleutheromaniac clamour, a changed world since these notables were organed out in May gone a year. They shall see now whether, under their seven princes of the blood in their seven bureaus, they can settle the moot points. To the surprise of patriotism, these notables, once so patriotic, seem to incline the wrong way, towards the anti-patriotic side. They stagger at the double representation, at the vote by head. There is not affirmative decision. There is mere debating, and that is not with the best aspects. For indeed, were not these notables themselves mostly of the privileged classes? They clamoured once, now they have their misgivings, make their dolorous representations. Let them vanish, ineffectual, and return no more. They vanish after a month's session on this 12th of December, year 1788, the last terrestrial notables not to reappear any other time in the history of the world. 
And so, the clamour still continuing, and the pamphlets and nothing but patriotic addresses louder and louder, pouting in from all corners of France, Necker himself some fortnight after, before the year is yet done, has to present his report, recommending at his own risk that some double representation, nay, almost enjoining it so loud as the jargon and eleutheromania, dubitating, what circumambulating, these whole six noisy months, for it began with Brienne in July, has not report followed report and one proclamation flown in the teeth of the other? However, that first moot point, as we see, is now settled. As for the second, that of voting by head or by order, it, unfortunately, is still left hanging. It hangs there, we may say, between the privileged orders and the unprivileged as a ready-made battle prize and necessity of war from the very first, which battle prize, whosoever seizes it, may thenceforth bear as battle flag with the best omens. But so, at least, by royal edict of the 24th of January, does it finally, to impatient, expectant France, become not only indubitable that national deputies are to meet, but possible, so far and hardly farther has the royal regulation gone, to begin electing them. End of Book 4, Chapter 1